our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There, as one, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow again for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask now that from your word, you would teach us. I ask that the Holy Spirit would bring truth. And God, that the Holy Spirit would use that truth to impact our lives. God, for those that know you, to conform us more to the image of Christ. And for those that don't know you, to draw them unto you personally, that they would come to know Christ. So Father God, today, We trust not only your word, but we trust the work of your spirit. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen. Unity in the church. Unity in the church. Have you ever heard the phrase, get on the same page, or be on the same page, or something of that variation? Anyone anyone ever heard that phrase? Yeah, that's that's a pretty common phrase. So now in just a moment, I'm going to let you answer out loud, and I know that's always a risk. But it appears that most of us have heard that phrase or some variation of that phrase, and I wonder in the context of when that phrase is used, what would you say that that phrase means? This is where you answer out loud. I'm sorry. Join me, okay, yeah, get on my page. Yeah, Most of us live life that way. In agreement, is that what you said? To agree with, okay, yeah, to be in agreement. Okay, somebody else. Hang on, I heard a few things. I'm going to start right here and then I'll swing over this way. Compromise. Compromise in what way? Help me. So that you can meet in the middle. So you can come together, Okay. Okay, a sense of understanding by being on the same page, right? Anybody else? Being part of a team. Being part of a team. I heard someone say that, but I don't know who. Oh, is that Ted? Okay, yeah. Being part of a team, being part of a larger group than yourself. That certainly, all of those certainly, when you hear that phrase in the context of our culture, carries that meaning or some aspect of that in regards to getting together. My next question And you probably don't want to answer this one out loud. How often are you and God on the same page? I guess we could have confession if anybody wants to. How often are you and God on the same page? And some of us here today may be sitting and wondering, hmm, 
What is God's page? I mean, in the terminology that we're using. And some of us may not only not be aware of what God's page is, some of us may not know how to get on it. How do I get on God's page? And the other question I would ask you to consider is what makes you think you can do better or even any good at all if you're not on God's page? Don't answer out loud. So, when we think of this phrase, I want us to understand, and let me quickly just walk through some of those questions. The only way you get on God's page is through salvation in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. That's the only way you get on God's page. Not only as a sinner born by nature adverse to God, the Bible says you're an enemy of God, you're hostile towards God. The only way you get on God's page is by being redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no other page that God has for anybody else to get on. That's the only way you get on God's page. So, simple answer there. But for those of us who are believers, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who know salvation in Jesus Christ, again, don't answer out loud, how many of us wiggle and squirm and struggle with feeling like we're staying on God's page. Disobedience, sin, there are hindrances to us understanding and and staying on God's page. Now, I'm not saying once you're saved you you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the life now of one who has come to know Christ, thus knows God. But let me tell you God's intention if you're on God's page. It's to move you away from you and towards Christ. And see, it's our sin and our disobedience and other facets of life here on this age that move us away. Look later in chapter 4. I think this may better explain what I'm talking about. Not that you can lose your salvation, but in this process that some might call sanctification. They may define it that way. Look down in verse 21 of chapter 4. If indeed you heard him, the him there's talking about Christ, and have been taught in him, talking about Christ, just as truth as in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you do what? You lay aside the old self. So when we get on God's page, God is moving us towards the truth in Christ. In reference to your manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's that sanctification. That's the, yeah, we're on God's page, but we keep disobeying and we keep meddling with sin and we're not crucifying the flesh and therefore we do that put on and take off. I mean, really the terminology there is like clothes. You know, and and our clothes get dirty, so we change clothes. But we know in Christ's righteousness we're saved. 
Some of us still go back to the dirty clothes hamper and keep putting on the dirty clothes. That's what we're supposed to throw off. And we're supposed to live in the new life that's in Christ. And the way this new life is lived is in the church. It's lived in the church. That's the unity aspect that is being highlighted here. And I, I, wish, I wish we could just take hours on end and so we could look at all of Ephesians chapter 4 as one. Because that's what it's talking about. It's talking about this worthy walk in those first few verses and the characteristics of that. And it transitions from that life in Christ to the one body, the one spirit. You're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the church, this one body, is unified objectively in Christ. The problem is most of us live subjective lives. Subjective to our circumstances, subjective to our feelings. Man, I just woke up with a headache. I'm just going to be grumpy all day. How many times have you used that as an excuse? Oh, I didn't mean to get so mad at you. I just woke up today with a headache. So waking up with a headache excuses you from living a Christ-like life? I mean, in essence, that's what you're saying. And this idea of being on the same page with God, it's not even something that's natural for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 starts off by saying we're what? What are we? Ephesians chapter 2, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. See, formerly, that's because in Christ we've been made new. Like the old self and the new self that the Apostle Paul was saying, you've got to stop going back and forth between. And we're corrupt, we're dead. We walk in disobedience, chapter 2, verse 2 says. We lived in the lust of our flesh. So see, if you're still living in that, <laughs> you're still putting on the dirty laundry. You've got to get rid of the dirty laundry. Let God move you on His page towards this unity that's found in Christ. It's an objective unity in Christ. Our problem is our subjectivity. And if these are issues for you, if you look at the end of chapter 2, we'll not turn there specifically, but the end of Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that even the chasm that both Jew and Gentile faced was brought together as one by the blood of Christ. I mean, so if you think you're way out there, you're no farther out there than Jew and Gentile viewed each other in the first century. But they're reconciled by the blood of of Christ's cross. And the idea is, is that bringing together that whole building, as it talks about, because Christ abolished any difficulties. So we're saved individually, and we're saved to be a part of God's church. And I think it would be fair to say today, if those are still problems you're having, the problem's not with God. That be a fair statement? <laughs> if not, then you don't understand God. And you may be worse off than you think. See, because here's what the Apostle Paul again says later on in regards to the storms, the obstacles, the subjectivity that we face in this world. 
We're to no longer be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or the trickery of men or by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And what the Apostle Paul is writing there in verse 14 is a result of that worthy walk that he described in the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 4. See, the unity of this walk is spoken of in regards to the unity of those who are believers. And the description of that worthy walk in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 is the Christian. And the objective truth of the unity is spelled out in verses 4 through 6. It's not up for discussion. God didn't throw it out there for you to say, oh, well, no, there is more than one. No. Do you see the word one repeated over and over and over in verses 4 through 6? It's because there's an objective oneness. I don't know if that's the proper grammar to say there. There's an objective unity in who God is. And it talks about one spirit, one Lord, one God the Father. We'll not get into it today, but there's your Trinitarian example of the unity that happens between Father, Son, and Spirit. If you want to go off in that direction. That's not the focus of the text, but he talks about Lord, Spirit, and God the Father. That's the Trinity. But that's not our focus, and it wasn't Paul's focus here. But it's in the truth of the text that Paul's giving this objective foundation. And this objective foundation that he's giving is based on all that he's explained in chapters 1 through 3. That's the objective reality. The problem is our subjective experience in the church as we deal with other human beings. And let me tell you something about this objective unity. You can't make it happen. It already exists. What happens is in our subjectivity, we sin, we get out of sorts with people, someone does us wrong, and we get all bent. And then you next thing you know, in our subjectivity, it appears we're not on the same page. Again, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying there's that difficulty. There's that rub. There's that, why can't we all be in unity? Folks, the unity is already there. It's kind of like your favorite sports team that won that championship, or that incredible cast of characters that pulled off that show on Broadway. And you think, why did they break up? Why did they stop? Why did they scatter? It was so cool. Even that army that marches in lockstep, there's something greater than the individual that's taking place. It's a group that's brought together to present something Am I the only one who watches theater, sports, or seen an army march? Some of you are looking at me like, huh? But you see that unity. You see that oneness. You see that togetherness that's greater than the parts that make up the whole. And there's just something about that. In fact, it's so enamoring that theater and professional sports... Those are multi-billion dollar industries. I mean, if it, didn't, if it didn't appeal to us somehow, nobody would be buying tickets and going to shows or going to concerts or going to sporting events. There's something about it. Folks, that's what people should be saying about the church. There's something about that group. 
even if they can't put their finger on it. And it's that objective unity we have in Christ. We as Christians moving in concert, as it were. The unity of the Spirit that's already been provided for us is a unity that's unique to the church. And so I I, I challenge you to understand this idea of unity and ask that you would examine yourself in where maybe you're trying to create or define this unity, or maybe you're operating adverse to this unity. That's the subjectivity of humans, because the objective truth is already laid out for us in this passage of Scripture. It is present and available for anyone in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And i got to tell you where I think the challenge is, is we just don't humbly recognize it and submit to it. Because, see, it's our own pride that sends us off into all these areas of subjective experience and feeling, and you don't know what he said, and you can't believe what she said, and all that kind of stuff that just tears at the subjective experience of the unity. But the objective truth is right here in Ephesians chapter 4. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. One. One. And by the way, in the Greek language, one means the same thing it does in English. One. One. That's the objective foundation of our unity in the Spirit for those who are in Christ. And yet this truth seems so fragile, as concrete as it is. Why? And this is one of those areas that God's grace continues to amaze me. God, why would you choose to use human beings? Because I know some of them, and I know me as well. Certainly there's got to be a better option. Folks, what's better than Christ? I mean, if we're in the church, we're in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're in the church. There's an objective truth there, and yet we make it way more fragile than it's supposed to be, yet in our subjectivity, that unity is impacted. We so easily get offended and turn away from God because of what somebody said or did. Come on now. Now you could start confessing. Well, I just don't like that person. Or you won't believe what that person said to me. Or I'm never going back to that church because someone was sitting in my seat. <laughs> Folks, it's that silly. And here's my, oh my goodness. It, can I just confess to you, I know uh, Daniel's actually away today preaching, doing pulpit supply at another church Rick and Scott, I think, would agree with this statement. In fact, I'm sure they would. We've talked about it. You know, there's some things a pastor can't say. Do you you understand? There's some things. I'm getting ready to say one. (laughs) Maybe two. Maybe two, so heads up. I've heard people say, I didn't like church this morning. That shouldn't bother you. That should relieve you, because church is not about you. There, I said it. No, you need to wake up. I, the worship just didn't do anything for me this morning. It wasn't intended to do anything 
You're not the focus. So think of what people are really saying when they say, oh, I didn't like the music, or I didn't like church. Well, the music and church, and I'll speak clearly for Murrieta Valley Church, is aimed at God. So if you didn't like it, I'll go back to a statement I made before. Where do you think the problem is? Come on now, let's get honest. The problem's not God. So that's how we so easily disrupt the subjective unity by our subjectivity. And I cannot drive home enough the fact that unity in the church is already settled for eternity. There's nothing else that God has planned or will do outside of what He's done in Christ. Nothing else. I'm almost getting ready to say something the pastor can't say again. I'm going to look for a church that has. Folks, let me tell you, if it's a church of Christ and Christ redeemed, it's all there. And maybe you're leaving is the blessed subtraction that they needed. I don't know why you're getting offended at that. Because what if you left the church and all of a sudden the unity was a whole lot more clear? Don't you just, doesn't it just bother you when you read the scripture and it's like a mirror? You know, usually we use the scripture like a window because we can look at other people in regards to what the Bible says. Oh yeah, it's glass. You can look right through it and I can see what's the matter with your life. But boy, when it's a mirror, we sure change, don't we? And we get all upset and we walk out saying, I didn't like church this morning. You're going against the very fabric of God's page that unifies. It unifies Jew and Gentile. It unifies harlot and hero. It unifies mom and murderer. That's how great the grace of God is through Christ. And he wants to bring us together as one, which is what he has already done. And we keep messing it up. We don't undo the unity. It's our subjectivity. You see, God's unity is not vulnerable, as if we could destroy it. It's already been settled by the blood of Christ's cross. Apostle Paul makes that clear. It's that blood, as he was talking about Jew and Gentile, that reconciles them together in one body. It brings those who are far off together. That can't be undone. And this unity rests on the oneness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that oneness of faith and that oneness of baptism and that oneness of the body. And the body is the church. All of this is built upon the truth of, first and foremost, there's only one God. He's a trinity, but there's only, he's trinitarian, but there's only one God. Secondly, there's only one Lord, the second part of the trinity, and that's Jesus Christ. And third, there's only one spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. The unity is the Trinity. God brings His people into that relationship. And being brought into that relationship, the fixed reality of unity is already set. It's said and done. It's eternal. There's nothing else to do. 
But we become vulnerable to this unity when, if you just want to look at specifics, go back up to verse 1 and 2 in chapter 4. See, because it tells us those who are called, the Apostle Paul is imploring them. In other words, he's admonishing, he's seriously telling them, look, here's the way you're supposed to be living. And you're supposed to be living in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, which is in Christ. So start with verse 2 if you, want, if you need a checklist on yourself. It says, evidence of this is humility. <laughs> I'm too humble to tell you about my humility award that I won. What's the opposite of humility? What? No, I need to hear that. Pride. There's probably your number one issue. When, when churches start to fraction. And again, I'm talking about the subjectivity of it. The objective unity is already nailed down. Pride. My way. What's the next one on the checklist? Gentleness. Pastor John, you're not being very gentle today. That's not my gift. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, Lance knows me. He's been around me long enough to know. But gentleness, that, that Christ-likeness, that, that meekness, that spirit of Christ that's evident, even when we have to speak forth something like things are being spoken forth today. I hope you know I'm only speaking it to you because I love you. Parents, you should understand that. You only speak in certain ways to your children because you love them. Look at the next one. Patience. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Your translation may say forbearance. But it's in what? In love. In love. See all these ways? Again, that's just the start. You start your list there. <laughs> you start your list there if you want to examine yourself. Is this the way I'm living as one who's saved by Christ in the body of Christ? Is this the way I'm living? It's easy to fool ourselves, to deceive ourselves, because our task is not to conjure up unity. What does the Apostle Paul say to do? Verse 3. What does he say to do in regards to the unity? Preserve or maintain, depending on your translation. He's not asking you to make anything up. He's saying, look, and I hope you've gotten it, the, the unity in Christ is already objective. It's already said and done. You now have a responsibility in preserving this, to walk in the truth that's in Christ. And it's those results that are going to be evident. Look at verses 20 through 32 real quick of chapter 4. Because this is where he expands on this. This is why I said I wish we had hours. We could just go through the whole chapter as a whole. But I'm going to briefly touch on a few things here. As he expands on what he's talking about at the beginning of the chapter. So we talked about those who are in Christ. Verses 20 through uh, 23, 24. You put on the new self. Verse 25. Laying aside falsehood. Speak the truth. Be angry, yet do not sin. 
I'm sure we all check that one off our list. And you go through here. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't steal. Work. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing all these ways that the Apostle Paul is explaining our involvement in preserving this. Un- Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification. Oh, but they needed to hear what I had to say. You ever had that attitude? Let all bitterness, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. See how all those are opposite of what he said in verses 1 and 2? That's that transition that he's going through to say, look, this is how the unity is maintained. This is how the unity is preserved. And it's only preserved by living in the new life of Christ. You can't work it up on your own. It's what God has provided for us. And I want to make a first century application to this idea of unity. And it goes something like this. We have lost a biblical view of what the church is as those who are called out. And I read a report that literally almost brought me to tears. Because, see, we've minimized church to if it fits in my schedule. If it fits in my, if it works. Well, of course, if the music's good. I mean, we've, we've taken all these crazy things and somehow equated that to what it means to be unified in Christ. I want to read to you what George Barna's foundation wrote in a State of the Church report. Under the heading, Attending Church is a Good Indicator of Faith Practices. And I'm quoting now in this report as he's defining terms Not yet giving statistics, but he's just defining terms. And this is the definition I couldn't get past when I think of what the Scripture tells us church is. Even though a majority of Americans identify as Christian and say religious faith is very important in their life, these huge proportions belie the much smaller number of Americans who regularly practice their faith. I'm still quoting. When a variable, so he's, talking, he's getting ready to explain all the charts and graphs and how he's going to take all the numbers and statistics. When a variable like church attendance is added to the mix, a majority, majority of people who call themselves Christian in, in the United States and, and they identify with church as part of their faith practice, a majority becomes the minority. When a self-identified Christian attends a religious service at least once a month, and says their faith is very important in their life. Barna considers that a practicing Christian. Would your boss consider you an employee if you showed up to work one day out of five? I mean, if let's say you go to church one Sunday out of the month. There's, what, four, sometimes five Sundays? Go to work one day out of five and see if your boss still considers you an employee. It'll show up on your paycheck, by the way. I'm just trying to give you that as a comparison. And yet one of the leading researchers across all the United States has to narrow down the definition to a, somebody who's practicing their faith with importance as attending church once a month. 
Now, you think the Apostle Paul comes across as harsh. Could you imagine how he would deal with that? Folks, the church body is not unified based on whether it fits your schedule, you like it or don't like it. The parts, as he's going to go on to explain here, following in the middle of chapter 4, the parts, the church body is unified based on the parts being fit together and made to fit together in Christ. And they're fit together in love for God's glory. We'll, we'll get to those verses, but that's what, the rest, that's what the middle part of the chapter says. The church is God's people, and we somehow have it backwards, thinking if it fits me, then it must be okay for me to show up once a month, and I'm part of the church. See, God is changing you. He's got you on his page. Now he needs to change you so that others can tell that you and God are on the same page. That's the idea of unity in the church. John Stott writes in his commentary here that for three chapters, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God being worked out in history for his glory. We saw that in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He goes on, as I quote, through Jesus Christ who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new, not just a new life for individuals, Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, and even a new humanity being created. Folks, that's the church. The church is to be the new humanity here on this earth. We must understand that. That's why God did all that he did through Christ, because he knew we had no chance of doing it on our own. And so now he brings us together so that others can look at us just like in the first century people said, hey, that Jew and that Gentile will never get together. The Apostle Paul says, no, by the blood of Christ, they can be. They're so different. And it's going to continue, like verse 13 says, until we all attain. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain. Until we all attain what? Well, look at it. Until we all attain to the unity of the flesh. So if there's somebody in the church you really can't stand, you need to get right with God or God's going to keep you there until you do. John Shirey paraphrase. And by you going to another church, if you truly belong to God, he's going to do the same thing. The idea is that the church become united in Christ. And God's going to do this work until we all attain to the unity. Come on, slackers. You're making us look bad. I mean, that's what he's saying. We're to grow up. Look back at your text. We're to grow up, in verse 14, till we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of God to a mature man to the measure of stature which belongs to Christ, no longer to be tossed to and fro. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fit 
and held fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, which causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I didn't just make that up, by the way. It's in Ephesians 4. So we know, at least in the Ephesian church, there was the issue of Jew and Gentile. But we also know that the answer for them being united is being united by the blood of Christ on the cross. They both have access in one spirit to one Father through one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I like the way the Apostle Paul describes it at the end of chapter 2. They were brought from far off and made near by the blood of Christ. Folks, the issue of unity should be no issue at all. And even though that seems far beyond what we can think or imagine, remember that's what the Apostle Paul said in chapter 3, that God wants to do far beyond what we can think or imagine. Just look around this room. I can't imagine being hooked up with that person. God wants to do something miraculous and change your heart and your life and your mind and your attitude about that person. The first century Jew and the first century Gentile were far off. But folks, today in our age, far off is not just culturally or personality or politically. Now I have to stop myself from saying something again a pastor shouldn't say, but I hope you get the the drift. The church unity is a revelation of what God has done in Christ. It's one of the ways God shows to the world. Not only the unity in the Trinity, but God's salvation, and that God's salvation is so great that those who are outside the church can look at this crew right here and go, man, how do they all get together? Because it's in Christ. That's how. And yet we still think that Marginal attendance, no involvement, I just don't fit in at church. Well, come join the rest of us. (laughs) It's only by the blood of Christ that we're brought together. Not because somebody's better than somebody else. It's the blood of Christ that takes all of us who don't fit in and takes all of us who don't have anything in common and takes all of us and unites us because of what Christ did at the cross. And let me tell you why. So that no human can take credit for it. God's all about Him getting the glory and the credit. We by ourselves can't even get unified with one other person. Yeah. You and one other person. Try and decide where to go to eat. Hey, let's go get something to eat. Oh, okay. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't care. Where do you want to go? Oh, okay, well, let's go to Mexican. No, I don't want Mexican today. So, I mean, you've had those conversations. We can't even get unified with one other person. See how glorious it is that God would take us and unify us in the cross of Christ? What movie you want to go see? Oh, don't get me started. We can't even agree with one other person about something. And you've heard the age-old question, why can't we all just get along? If the answer's not obvious by now, let me spell it out for you. We were never all along to begin with. 
Isaiah 59.2 says, sin separated you from God. Well, let me tell you what happened when sin separated us from God. Sin separated us from one another. It's that pride. It's that lack of love. It's, all, it's the anger. It's the, the malicious words. All that stuff that we've already touched on. We were never together to begin with. Why would you ask the question, why can't we all get along now? See how great the unity of God is. He brings together those who couldn't even agree with one other person. He saves sinners and he unites them. Why didn't your favorite band stay together? Why didn't your favorite sports team stay intact to win one more championship? Why didn't that cast of players stay together to perform one more Tony Award winning performance? I'll tell you why. Their humanity got in the way. That's it. Now, A lot of people in those situations won't answer it that way, but let me tell you the answers I've heard, because these are acceptable terms. Artistic differences. (laughs) I mean, we broke up over artistic differences. Yeah, just call it what it is, your own sin nature. Because your sin nature wanted to go this way with art, and his sin nature wanted to go that way with the art, and the two went in separate directions. But it's okay if it's artistic differences. Yeah. See, that's the problem with us. <laughs> or maybe something like, oh, we were just heading in different directions. No, you were heading down your own hellbent direction, which happened to be different in somebody else's hellbent direction. And when Christ saves you, now you both have the same direction. So there shouldn't be any reason to not be unified. I hope I've made it clear the emphasis of unity that the Apostle Paul was making clear today. And it's all for the glory of God so that people would see that if anybody can bring a group together like this, it had to be God. It had to be. And as a Christian, if you're outside this unity, let me also be clear. That's your problem, not God's. You need to confess. You need to repent. I don't know the specifics unless you just want to come and share it with me. But it's something in your life that needs to change. If you claim to be a Christian and you're outside of that. If you claim to be a Christian and you're not involved in the unity of the church. Folks, let me tell you one of the things that thrills me most about growth group is it's that opportunity that we call at Murrieta Valley Church to grow in significant Christian relationships And yes, my growth group, it happens. We come here and somebody makes a comment and the rest of the people in our growth group will laugh, but nobody else knew the comment or the context. See, that's an aspect of unity. That's an aspect of sharing and investing in one another's lives and taking the time to do that. But I also want to challenge you if you're here today and you're not a Christian. There's only one way you can get on God's page, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross by his shed blood that paid for your sin. There's no other way. There's no other way. And so I would challenge you here today, as we pray, bow your heart humbly before God and just literally open yourself up to him. Say, God, where do I need to change? I need to come to Christ in salvation. I need to repent. 
of the subjective disunity that I cause, whatever it is, I don't know. I can't answer for you. But join with me, if you would, in a word of prayer as we bow together.